Welcome to Quest with Kirk Durston. I'm your host, Sheldon Kotick. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to give us five stars if you like it. If you don't like it, please tell us why. And now, Quest with Kirk Durston. All right, here we go again. It is Thursday, April 14th, 11 o'clock my time, uh, 11.10 my time, I should say. Uh, welcome, Kirk. Welcome, John. We're looking forward to this conversation. Um, it just happened to line up perfectly. Tomorrow is Good Friday. We're, um, I don't like using the term celebrating, but we're remembering uh, Jesus' death on the cross, what it means. Uh, there's a celebration behind that, but um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's an amazing time, and it just happened to line up with the conversation that Kirk and I have been having over the last four and four months, I guess, um, that we're talking about something that you've been spending, John, a lot of time on. Um, and, uh, so it just happens to line up perfect. This is, this is amazing. It's almost like, uh, God has a plan. Um, but, uh, before we get to that, uh, how are, how are you guys doing? I'll give I'll do the introduction in a little bit, but how are you guys doing? We'll start with Kirk. Uh, Kirk, your uh, your satellite uh, internet is moving forward. You got a new computer. Now we just got to get it all plugged in so it's all working nice and fast. But uh, how's life? Life is uh, actually pretty good. I mean, with a new, I always hate getting a new computer because there's that all the migration and all that works. You know, that's done. But then there's all the passwords that didn't get automatically transferred, and for the next day or so, and then subscriptions that go haywire because they don't recognize your new computer so it's just a cleanup now just uh, odds and ends but uh got um yeah i'm doing i can't think of anything to complain about actually well, well then you haven't been on twitter you need to spend tried, more time on twitter because that'll give you actually, less to complain about. actually i did spend a bit of time on twitter uh just like ha- 20 minutes ago i i was just on twitter to advertise this this live stream and then there was this you know how it is. You see in the sidebar a bunch of updates from Ukraine or whatever, and next thing, off you go. Uh, that can be that can be, yeah, that can be depressing. That can be a little bit disturbing. Um, yep. But otherwise, you know, I'm still sane, relatively speaking. Good. Good. How are you, how are you doing, John? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, I'm getting super excited for spring. And for mm-hmm. actually nice weather, I've been uh, growing plants in my basement, getting ready to go outside. So I have uh, 55 pepper plants and then some eggplants and tomato plants ready. Very nice. You got a greenhouse down there? Kind of. Like I have a bunch of grow lights. If you walk into my basement, it looks like I got a grow up going on. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I got a, like a little mini greenhouse sort of thing that my wife found on the side of the road and got for me because she thought I might like it. And I got a whole bunch of lights set up. And so, yeah, but I got about 20 different varieties of pepper that I'm super excited to try. Very good. Are they all like uh, hot peppers or is it just general general stuff? Are you growing ghost peppers in your basement right now? I'm, to... I'm growing something close to a ghost pepper. I think it's actually hotter than the ghost, but I'm not sure. Uh, so it's mm. called Armageddon. Oh, yeah. nice. and uh, most of it is hot peppers. I got a few sweet ones. So I got something called the habanada, which is like a habanero flavor, but it has zero heat. 
And then I also have a few real habaneros that are like uh, citrus flavored and stuff. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to try a bunch of them. I've never tried them before. Nice. Oh, my mouth is watering, just watering, thinking about that, Jonathan. It, it's unfortunate that wings are so expensive right now, or I'd say let's all, let's all do wings, but uh, man, the price of, uh, price of chicken is just skyrocketed and, that, that's one thing I'm trying to figure out. Like, is there a chicken shortage? <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, today we're going to talk about did Jesus die or did he just pass out? And uh, we, we invited John here because uh, this is sort of your area of expertise uh, from what I'm hearing from Kirk. And so I want to just read your bio right off your website, johntopping.com, uh, J-O-N topping.com. And... Um, you're an apologist, you're a speaker, you're a teacher and a writer. Uh, you work for Engage International. You're the writer and host of the Ultimate Questions podcast with Power to Change. That's us. An apologist for Ratio Christi and an adjunct professor at Ma Master's College and Seminary, where you enjoy the privilege of teaching your favorite subjects of philosophy, ethics, and apologetics. You've been involved in apologetics evangelism for over a decade. You hold an MA in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics from Biola in California at the Talbot School of Theology and a BA from Tyndale in Toronto with a double major in Philosophy and Religious Studies. Graduated from Niagara College with a diploma in Film and Video Production, which is good because I'll get you to edit this thing later, um, And uh, which is where your faith was first challenged, leading to your call into this ministry. Reside in Peterborough, Ontario, with two children and pets. You got a dog named. Okay, let me get this straight. Your dog is named Lieutenant Reginald Barkley. Yeah, that's awesome. Hold on, hold on. Spot because you do both of that and Doctor Daniel Jackson. Here's, here's the lieutenant. Uh, oh, that's a lieutenant. Yeah. Well, wow, very cool. And then uh, your uh, sir hobbies: uh, spending time with your family playing board games and exploring 3d art and game development, which is pretty cool. And I know we've had a few conversations around the uh, virtual reality side of things. Yeah. And so looking forward to getting to that with you too. Mm -hmm. But um, did I miss anything, anything you want to point out there? Uh, tell us about your family a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. My daughter, Laura, she's four years old. Joshua's two. Uh, Laura is the most girliest girly girl. She loves pink and purple and bracelets and headbands and pretty dresses and cats and just goes all out. And Joshua loves dinosaurs. Just awesome. always, always and try to, I, I spoke at my uh, old church the other day and we had them up on stage and I go, Hey, Joshua, what do you want to say to the congregation? And I'm pretty sure what he said was either me, dine, dine or T-Rex or something and roared. So Awesome. That pretty much sums up his personality right now. <laughs> Very good. Uh, the, the play times together should be fun in the next couple of years as uh, Dinosaur Eats Barbie and <laughs> uh, stuff like that. So that, that's that's awesome stuff. All right. Well, um, I'm going to take a step back here and let you guys chat. Kirk, uh, why don't you uh, share a little bit, give a little bit of the background as to where we've come from over the last uh, couple of weeks. And then that should get us right into the uh, topic of today. Sure, yeah. So um, <clears throat> a number of weeks ago, we started with 
kind of like the basic fundamental question, does God exist? And there's a lot of different paths we could have taken at that road. But I started with the most basic one, and that is, where did nature come from? We know it had a beginning, and um, we also know logically <clears throat> that nature could not have brought itself into existence. So really, there's only two options. Nature brought itself into existence or something supernatural did it or not unnatural. And when you only have two options and one is logically impossible, then logic dictates that the origin of nature itself has to be supernatural. So we established just by pure logic that there's a supernatural origin and foundation for physical reality. And then we moved on from there to uh, <clears throat> kind of derive other characteristics. For example, the enormous design in the universe, um, incredible design, the high, the, the astonishing level of design, fine-tuned to be able to support life suggests that there was a purpose and intent for the universe. That is, it needs to be able to support life. But when you have purpose and intent and a plan, that suggests that the designer of the universe is actually a mind, has a super mind, is a super intelligence. We're not just talking about a force, but it's a personal being. It's, it's, a, it's the ultimate in, in intelligence. And so the next question was, well, has this, if the purpose is life and we're it, we're life as well as other life forms on the planet, has the super intelligence and will basically at this point, we had defined a general, what the, we had shown that the general concept of God exists. Like not just the concept exists, but the God in a very general sense exists in the sense that there's a supernatural, eternal, uncaused creator. And we dealt with those individual attributes. But now has God ever interfaced with humanity? Has there God ever uh, appeared and made contact with us? And we looked at basically there's only one serious contender for that position in human history only one in there is a unique individual who actually not only claimed that he was god but had ancient prophecies about him long before he came that we know existed before he came and so the question arises well then why should we i mean other people can claim to be god why should we put any extra credibility on jesus of nazareth and basically, there's two lines of warrant for taking his claim seriously. One was that he seems to have fulfilled ancient prophecies that were made hundreds and even thousands of years before he showed up in history, making Christianity the only religion in human history that begins hundreds and even thousands of years before its central figure shows up. All other, like for a normal man-made religion, you have a, some charismatic individual and he, his teachings get preserved and the religion follows afterwards. But in this case, the religion starts centuries before. So that was the first line of warrant. But then the second line of warrant is appears that there is some pretty impressive uh, historical evidence that he actually uh, rose from the dead on the third day in Jerusalem. There was this massive explosion of belief that he'd risen from the dead within weeks of his resurrection. We know even from hostile reports that the tomb had been guarded by Roman soldiers. It was empty on the third day. And so they, everybody knew where this tomb was supposed to be, but yet it was empty. And then this, this Christianity explodes throughout the Roman empire. Now, <clears throat> but we did not deal, well, we dealt with one objection and that was the guards fell asleep and stuff. We sort of talked about that last week a little bit, but 
Another objection is this, that Jesus didn't actually die. He passed out or swooned or something and resuscitated. So this brings us to John. Jonathan here has, has done some extra investigation into this area and knows more about this than, well, anybody else I know, actually. <laughs> and so, uh, John, um, welcome here. And could you, uh, I don't know, you probably have, let's just flesh out for us, just give us kind of um, um, an introduction to this idea that Jesus maybe didn't die, maybe he passed out. What is, how is the objection framed today? And you don't have to limit it to today. How has it been framed in history and what's the current status today? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. let's let's talk about this and pester you with questions. And by the way, uh, if anybody does join here, they can post their questions in the chat. But even if you have not here live, even if you watch this later, still put your comments in because we will review those comments afterwards and we may want to discuss them in next week or the week after. So no matter when you watch this, if you got comments, post them or questions or something you want us to clarify or expand on, put that in the comments. So, John, up, uh, just just bring us up to speed on this, this so-called swoon theory or the idea that Jesus didn't die or just passed out or whatever. Yeah, sure. So the swoon theory, the, the nice thing about the swoon theory for the secular approach is that it handles uh, most of the data. And that's the problem that we see with a lot of the different uh, ways people try to explain Jesus Christ is they will give an explanation that explains some of the data, but not all of it. So, for example, if we say something like, oh, the disciples were hallucinating or something. Well, that doesn't explain why the tomb was empty. Right. So or something like the the imposter on the cross uh, the theory where there was somebody else on the cross. Well, that doesn't explain like how the Romans, like, why did the Romans get the wrong guy? How does Jesus's mom think he's being crucified? Why does his best friend think he's being crucified? Doesn't explain everything. The nice thing about the swoon theory for the secular perspective is that it accounts for the empty tomb because Jesus walked out of the tomb of his own volition because he was still alive. It explains that the fact that everybody saw him get crucified because he actually did get crucified on the swoon theory. It just didn't kill him. So in this model, what they would say is that Jesus really did get crucified and he was hanging on the cross. Usually the way it plays out is that um, from blood loss or whatever, Jesus is hanging there and passes out. And because he's gone through so much trauma, they even hitting him like he doesn't wake up. So he looks like a corpse. So they take him down and they um, toss him in uh, his tomb and they leave him for dead. And so then Jesus wakes up in the cool of the tomb uh, and comes out and pre uh, presents himself to his disciples and they're all happy and start celebrating it as if it's a resurrection. And so that's through mythology developing over the years and people exaggerating stories, it eventually becomes this grandiose story of Jesus being the son of God, being um, divine and being God himself and that he resurrected supernaturally and had this amazing, super powerful body. So that's the way it uh, usually gets phrased um, in, in the past and even by people today. Okay, so I'm hearing this and I'm going, um, possible, but that's depending a lot on Roman incompetence. 
not even just Roman incompetence. It would be, you're, you're totally right, but it's not just limited to that. There's, once you start digging into it, there's so many problems. Um, but yeah, Roman incompetence, first of all, where if you or I, like if, if we're all sitting together and Kirk all of a sudden passed out and we, we, we don't know how to check a pulse. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I slap him around. He doesn't wake up. I'm, if we think he's dead or something and you and I carry him out to the backyard to um, dig a pit for him, uh, you and I in our ignorance might think he's dead. If you are a trained professional, there's no way you would assume he's dead. You would know. Trained professional killer. Killer. Yeah. And these Romans would have been around death a lot. They had crucified a lot of people. There was even one um, Roman writing that talked about how many people were being crucified. And they, now it might've been an exaggeration, but they said they ran out of wood in, in the Roman empire. They ran out of wood because they were crucifying so many people, probably an exaggeration, but it just shows you they're crucifying people during that time period all over the place. And so these Roman executioners would know whether somebody's dead or not. It would, they, like you said, they'd have to be incredibly incompetent. And even, and even then, to make matters worse, uh, they would do things to make sure the person was dead, which we have other Roman accounts of. You don't just have to trust the Bible. We have other Roman accounts of this, where they would uh, pierce people just to, in, not, to ensure death and also just to prove the person was already dead. And what do you know? We find that in scripture where it says that they, they were kind of like, oh, he's already dead. So they pierced him with a spear. Right. So the idea that a Roman professional killer could mistake somebody for being dead, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And so then you start getting other people that will try to fix the conspiracy theory here and they'll try to come up with new ways to fix it. So they'll say um, it's not that they were incompetent. It's that they were drugged or that they were drunk or that they were bribed or something else. You don't, you don't necessarily have to have Jesus passing out and them not realizing it because there's other ways that it could happen. But problem there is if you're drinking on the job, you're, the, the, the penalties for this sort of thing were extremely severe to the point that you could be killed for it. So if there is a, a Jewish instigator calling himself a king and you get him. And this, this happened now and then back then too. There were other people calling themselves the king of the Jews and the Messiah and these sorts of things and trying to usurp Rome's authority. So if you got one of these guys and you're hanging out, um, having some booze with your buddies, you'd probably get killed. So the idea there doesn't make any sense. Then you think, okay, well, what if they were bribed? It's like, there's actually writings that show um, people in Roman government positions and Roman military positions were very, very well paid, deliberately so, because Rome wanted to keep their loyalty. They wanted them to be nationalistic in favor, in favor of Rome. They wanted them to be all passionate about it. So they paid them very well. So it's kind of like if you know somebody that's a CEO and like you're nobody, you know, you have like a part time job at Wendy's or something. And you try to you try to bribe him a few bucks to get your way. He's not going to pay attention to you. He's not going to respect you. Right. So that's the sort of situation here where you have some like bohunk fisherman going to bribe a Roman centurion. Even collectively, they're not going to come up with en enough funds for him to risk his own well-being and his family's well-being just so they can let some guy off across. Right. So no matter how you frame it, it 
like I said, it ends up looking like a conspiracy theory. And even though it handles the data at first glance, it starts running into problems really quickly. And I, one other thing I'm thinking of is I'm pretty sure the Pharisees wanted him dead even more than the Romans. Yeah. So where are they now? Oh, look, uh, he's finally been crucified. We're not going to care if he's actually dead or not. Like you, Yeah, that, and, that's, and that's definitely a good point where the people that were orchestrating his uh, crucifixion are definitely going to want the job to be finished, right? So yeah, that obviously they would make sure of it. They would know where the body went. And that's why, they, like, like the, the rest of the story says, they posted guards around the tomb because the Pharisees wanted to make sure nothing happened. Not even the fact that, and, and this is interesting to note, they weren't thinking maybe he survived. That wasn't even a thought. Nobody survives crucifixion. That wasn't even a thought. Their thought was, we don't want anybody to steal him to try to pretend like he survived. So let's guard the tomb with some professional Roman uh, guards then. And so then and the a big rock. either Jesus overcame the guards in his half dead state or the disciples, a bunch of fishermen trying to take on armed Roman professional guards. Uh, again, no matter how you slice it, it just ends up being nonsensical. So like, they also put this big rock in place. Yeah. That it took a couple of big guys to move. The guy that hung on the cross for three days has been barely alive in the tomb, supposedly, is going to move this rock by himself and the guards aren't going to stop it. Yeah. And it actually gets worse than that too, because the way the rock would likely, we don't know this for sure, but likely was that it would be rolled down into kind of like a groove. So even then, even if it takes two guys to push it up, uh, push it down the hill, it's going to take a lot more to try to remove it from the groove and push it back up. But yeah, the, the way the story goes, like, like you were kind of, um, saying there it gets so funny because it's like let now it's sad because we're dealing with the crucifixion but it, it, it ends up being kind of a funny story in the sense of you you whip jesus and we have roman writings that talk about what the roman flogging would look like and one of them says uh that when you were flogged by romans your bones would show so it's not just like a little whipping and you're bleeding a little bit. It would be gouges ripping off your skin, ripping off your muscle. You would not be able to function. You'd be bleeding heavily. Um, most uh, in the past, most people thought crucifixion killed by blood loss just because of the Roman flogging, if nothing else. So you got this Jesus that's been flogged. His muscles are hanging. His bones are exposed. He's bleeding profusely. They wrap him up in the burial garments stick them in a tomb and push the, a stone in front and have guards there. And then Jesus somehow in this state unwraps himself from the inside, wakes up, pushes that boulder aside with his muscles hanging off, probably couldn't even grasp something, right? Nonetheless. Well, he couldn't even carry his own cross. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and standing on his ankles, and we know now that very likely crucifixion victims, we, we show it where it's uh, through the heel, um, it would actually be through the bone of the heel, the ankle bone. We have we have a couple of um, remains that we found where the uh, nail was through the ankle bone. So imagine trying to stand on that. And like you said, he couldn't even carry his own cross. And now he's going to push that boulder aside by himself. He gets outside and there's an armed guard waiting for him. He's totally naked, overcomes two armed Roman guards, and then walks 
not just across town, but across multiple towns for a three-day journey to meet them in Galilee, naked, bleeding everywhere. It just, like, it, so it doesn't make sense when you think of it that way. And that's, historically speaking, that's how people have thought of it. Where when this idea that Jesus just passed out, the swoon theory came out, it was basically dead on arrival because there were other theologians writing during that time. And one of them named David Strauss saw some of the ridiculous things that you're pointing out and said, this just doesn't make any sense. How could this sort of thing ever even theoretically take place? And even if all of these ridiculous parts of the story are all true, you do not get to the point where even if the, the craziness of that story were true, even if it's true, you don't get people thinking he's resurrected. You have a bloody, mangled mess of a body. You would say, you might praise God, you might think it was a miracle, but you're not going to think it was a resurrection. You're going to think, wow, praise God, I can't believe he survived. You would never think, oh, he must be God, this guy that's bloody and needs medical attention. The correct response would be, let's try to find a doctor to help him. Right. So yeah. you don't even get the right response in that in that sense. So, yeah, like, like you pointed out, <clears throat> two, things, two things come to mind here as I'm listening here, John. The first was that um, the story that did circulate in Jerusalem by those who were like, say, the Pharisees was was not that he had passed out and, and recovered consciousness. Um, but it was that the disciples had stole the body while the guards were napping. Yeah. But the fact that that other story is circulating also suggests that the, the Pharisees, if they're going to make up a story, would go with what would be the most credible to the population at general. And the idea that somebody had been crucified and whipped and, and crucified and then resuscitated in a tomb and, and escaped, that wasn't even on the table because the people in those days had it was relatively common probably to see a, some crucified guy hanging by the roadside yeah. by the Romans. So they would know that's not even on for an explanation. The second thing though, that occurred to me a little bit earlier in your talk was that it's a common thing I see nowadays. It's some might call it chronological arrogance. That is, well, today we, we know, you know, this and that we're pretty good and everything else, but everybody who lived in the past was basically stupid yeah. And they didn't know what they're doing. And, and so this swoon theory, uh, as we've already mentioned, assumes a certain a level of chronological arrogance there that the Romans, who killed people all the time uh, on a regular basis and crucified people, as you pointed out, were stupid and they didn't really know if the guy was dead or not. But you don't need to see too many dead people. Like I, I unfortunately found someone who had... Um, ended their life with a with a rifle shot through their head and there's no blood i mean the thing that strikes you is that the blood all drains down and you've only to see a few people who are who are have passed on to to recognize that per i don't even need i didn't even need to go up close to the person to know this person is and i'm not a professional executioner like these guys and who were who were carrying out crucifixions i knew that this person is he's done he's he's not here because the a person has a certain look when the blood all drains down so they would know that they would they would be eminently experienced as to who's dead and who's not and a person who's merely passed out will still have some circulation going and they will not fool a professional 
especially if that person's still vertical on a cross. So we, we assume a certain level of stupidity and incompetence often when it comes to the ancients. And really, um, the Sun theory depends on that assumed level of stupidity and incompetence when, in fact, um, as you pointed out, the penalty for <laughs> drinking on the job. Now, last week we pointed out Polybius uh, had recorded uh, what happens when a Roman soldier fell asleep. Could be literally clubbed to death mm -hmm. by his fellow soldiers as a penalty. So we we assume things about professional killers back then, i.e. the Roman soldiers who were in charge of crucifixions, that are simply actually quite silly, perhaps arrogant on our part, um, that just don't fly in reality. If they had let them off the hook, as you pointed out, there would be serious repercussions from the leadership. Those soldiers, that they're... They would be disciplined if not executed for incompetence. And like, and, and for me, it's the Pharisees. There is zero chance they are allowing this guy to live. Zero chance. Yeah. And as, yeah, they were there. And as you pointed out too, uh, the idea that it it requires a level of historical ignorance. If you look at people who actually study this stuff, not just Christians, but people who study history, no Roman history anyone they do not hold the swoon theory they can't they know they can't so they do not have that historical ignorance they know what um what it was like back then they've read all the writings they know they know what the case was like and they know swoon theory is impossible and none of them will hold it because it's just so ridiculous if you look at what was actually happening i mean we have writings where people uh we actually have less writings about crucifixion than you would think just because it was so horrific and barbaric deliberately barbaric that the roman audience considered it taboo to even discuss we have writings where people will say the word crucify like for, for us the word crucifixion different word for them but the root word for crucifixion the word for the cross shouldn't even be on the lips of the the roman audience they shouldn't have to think about it they shouldn't have to deal with it because it's so barbaric and horrific it was called the um the supreme sort of torture in, in that sense. It's the worst thing that you could ever possibly do to somebody. There's even one account. Roman, Romans wouldn't execute uh, Romans yeah. with crucifixion. It was like, we won't even put our own people through this, yep. There's, no matter how bad they are. There was one case where a Roman was crucified, and the whole time he was being crucified, he was saying, I'm Roman. I'm, why are you doing this? I'm Roman. Yeah, like kind of saying, like, I do not deserve the worst of the worst penalty. And then later on in court, the person that was kind of bringing this up was like, you knew he was Roman and you crucified him? What kind of a monster are you? Because it was assumed as the worst. There was another one where they found, um, I forget the person's crime, but it was some kind of a terrible, horrible criminal where they, they, they literally gathered as a group of elders and said, we want to make this guy feel the worst possible stuff in the world before we end his life. What are we going to do to him? And they said, okay, well, first we start with crucifixion. Oh, of course we crucify him. Like, yeah, if we want him to suffer, of course we're going to use crucifixion. Let's also do all these other terrible things to him, right? So, yeah, it's, it's understood as the worst of the worst. And, and that's by the Romans, who were one of the most brutal people, one of the most brutal empires that ever existed. And to them, this was the most brutal thing that you could do to somebody. So yeah, like Kirk's saying, it's it it requires an ignorance of the history behind it to to really 
agree with that position. Now, is it a is it an ignorance or is it a deliberate ignorance? Yeah. Because I, from from just hearing about this and doing a little bit of research earlier, and I know we talked about it at Bible school a little bit. Um, it it wasn't like it's a it is so far in that conspiracy realm that so many things would have to have taken place for this to happen that just, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. You get, you get two different crowds that hold this as far as I can tell you get people that, like you said, it's a willful ignorance where they, they want Christianity to be false and they will come up with whatever they can. And regardless of the evidence you put forward, they just mock you in some way. Um, but all you got to do is point out even secular historians disagree with you and don't think this is a possibility. So usually they, they, they back off and they, I've had a lot of people when I have these discussions where they do back off and they say, given the evidence, because I'm not just relying on the Bible here, let's look at Roman writings, given the evidence, you're right, that doesn't really seem like an option. So then they'll default to something else, like, the, like uh, hallucinations or something. But what I find most of the people that hold this are, is people that have just never thought about it. They know nothing about the topic. They're, uh, they're secular. They have le either left Christianity behind or they've never been Christian. And they just don't know. And so when you, when you look at crucifixion from, from an outsider's perspective, if you don't know anything about it, well, big deal. You strap a guy to a beam and he, lay, he stands there for a while. What, does he die of hunger? You know, like you, you wouldn't grasp the concept of what's actually happening to the person. That's why, like I said, most people think that Jesus died from blood loss just because, oh, well, if you if you pierce the, the hand here and you put it in, in, maybe it hits some veins and he bleeds out. If you nail the person in the ankles, well, that would really be terrible. Maybe he gets he goes into shock. Right. And that's what most people think. But if you look at the data regarding crucifixion um, in terms of what kills the person, it's actually full body asphyxiation. Which is, which is odd. You wouldn't think that. It's, it's not just asphyxiation in the sense of if you grab somebody by the throat and choke them out and they can't breathe. It's full body asphyxiation where you can breathe, but you're not getting enough oxygen to supply your whole body. And so your whole body slowly shuts down unless you can get a good breath of fresh air. And this is actually why if you wanted the person to live longer for crucifixion, which they did, they wanted it to be torturous, you would put something through their ankles so that they can push themselves up. So with crucifixion, if you're, if you're like this and you're hanging by your hands, you don't even have to have nails involved. If you're, if you're slumped over, you can breathe in, but you can't breathe out very well. So you don't even notice it. You're getting enough air to survive, but then every now and then if you push yourself up and get a nice, nice big breath of fresh air, breathe out nicely, breathe in, and then go back down, you can last longer. And so, like we've been saying, a Roman executioner would know if you're actually dead. If a Roman executioner sees, okay, he's been in the low position for a while now. He hasn't been breathing properly. It's been 10 minutes. Dude's dead. And we know this. Stab him just to be sure. Yeah, and let, just to be sure, let's stab him. Exactly. And we have cases of that too. So, yeah, this, I, this idea of, like you're saying, is it, is it an ignorance or a willful ignorance? I think it's just that people don't know how, how deadly crucifixion is. They think you just string a guy up. Who cares? It might kill him. It might not. It'd be easy to survive, but it's not. And interestingly, we have cases 
where people even accidentally kill themselves by something like crucifixion. So if you, um, I, I forget the term, Kirk probably knows better than I do, but the, the we, you go up into a tree to hunt and you stay in the thing in the tree. I forget the term for it. It's a tree stand. Yeah, yeah. Blind. So those tree, stand. those tree stands have a harness that you strap yourself into properly so that you don't fall out and kill yourself. There's cases where people will not strap themselves in properly and then they trip and then they get strung up with their harness. Their arms are like this, strung up. What do you know? They die. And when the, the rangers or whoever come and find them, they're like, what they get do an autopsy. What killed them? Full body asphyxiation. Not just being choked out around the neck or something, but basically crucifixion. There's also times where uh, college and university students will pull a prank on somebody, like a hazing for the football team, and they'll t get some ropes and tie them around the playground and then leave them there and say, oh, we'll pick you up in the morning. Ha ha ha. And they come back and the dude's dead because they strung him up, right? And that's all you got to do. They can, he can breathe in. He can't breathe out. He'll die. Mm. Uh, after, not, not even after all that long. Um, interestingly, we, we have records that the Nazis crucified people to do these tests on them. And they found that if you string somebody up, they stay in the low position. So nothing to support them. Stay in the low position. They pass out after about 10, 11 minutes and die soon after. So, yeah, people thinking that it's possible to just pass out on the cross and be taken down and thrown, thrown in a tomb or something. They don't realize if you pass out on the cross or even if you fake your own death or something, you will actually die because crucifixion kills you quite quickly when you're in that, when you're in that down position. Hmm. Wow. That sounds pretty, um, it's very unfortunate that, you know, we have to hear about these details, but on the other hand, I think it really does, uh, in me, it creates a huge uh, sense of gratification and a gratitude uh, to Christ for what he actually had to go through or decide, he willingly went through for us. And was but prophesied also, years yeah, before. prophesied about a thousand years before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, especially Psalm 22, it seems to describe a crucifixion, hands and feet pierced, um, and it was also prophesied that he would be given vinegar to drink as he was on the cross. But the swoon theory just doesn't seem like, even today, I don't refresh my memory here, John. I have read about seven different theories to account for the resurrection appearances. Mm -hmm. None of them, as far as I, uh, I, am I missing one? But none of them uh, invokes the, the idea that he had just passed out. They all have other kind of explanations for the resurrection appearances. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you run across this as well? Yeah, so that's what um, advocates of the swoon theory will say, that the resurrection appearances can be described by Jesus just being okay again. So, for example, there's um, people that will hold that the timeline, even the biblical timeline of when the crucifixion was and when Jesus met his disciples in Galilee, as he said he would, there was a period of time there, which might have been around, all, not even two weeks, but around there, a week and a half or so. So, if so, they're, so they're ignoring him seeing the women coming to the tomb. Yes, they're ignoring the women coming to the tomb, and they're ignoring the two disciples on the road that also met Jesus. But they'll say, okay, well, yeah. those might be elaborations, those might be hallucinations, who knows? They might be a vision, a real 
like vision or something. There's even Christians that thought that it was just a vision of Jesus. But they'll say, yeah. the people that hold the swoon theory now might say um, that Jesus said he was going to meet them in Galilee, and he met them in Galilee 10, 11 days later. So Jesus had about 11 days to recover. And it could have been longer. Like the one guy I was reading, he said it could be a month. So Jesus, even if we grant that, which I don't think we do, I think it's about 11 days. But even if we grant that, the, that Jesus had a month to recover, then when they meet him, he's had that time to recover. He's looking okay. He's revitalized. He's had some good food to eat. Maybe he's got medical care. And now he's presenting them, himself to them. And they think, you just got crucified by the Romans just a few weeks ago. And you're looking pretty good. You must have been resurrected because that's a Jewish concept. Um, and still, there's still blatant problems with this. First of all, the disciples would never assume a resurrection. Their theological understanding of the resurrection is it's end time stuff, right? It's end of the world, all things being gathered together under God. That's when the resurrection happens. But even then, the idea that Jesus could recover that quickly doesn't make any sense, right? Like, like I said, you have a, a nail going through the ankle bone. You've ripped the muscles off that the bones are exposed, like excessive blood loss, huge scarring. If you were to meet somebody like that, even a decade later, it would be, it would be a mess. They would not, you would, they would be in very bad physical shape. They would never return to normal. But to answer Kirk's question, the idea of how do we explain the resurrection appearances, the person holding the swoon theory would say that he just got better by the time people started seeing him around. Wouldn't the Pharisees and Romans be looking for him during this time? Like, even if it's a month, uh, Romans were really good at finding people, especially like people that escaped. <laughs> and uh, he obviously didn't go too far. Uh, wouldn't they have been doing a house-to-house -house search and, and all of that stuff to keep themselves from being embarrassed? Yeah, and, and I totally agree. And on that note, if Jesus did just pass out, and even if he got medical aid, the proper response would be to run away and hide and start a new life. You don't come back into the public sphere and announce yourself to hundreds and hundreds of people saying, hey, here I am with a big target on your chest. That's yeah, especially, especially if you're uh, at the risk of getting crucified and whipped all over again. Yeah. You have a certain lack of appeal if you've already gone through that already. Yeah. And the, but the other thing is, is that I'm from the accounts, uh, the alternative account, how the tomb got empty. I'm not sure that the Romans themselves would have um, known about this other than the soldiers, because they would want to keep it quiet, because according to the story, they fell asleep on the job. And so they're not going to be telling that to their commander. Uh, and the Pharisees paid them off. So it would be the Pharisees that would launch this manhunt. But that does explain a lot of his resurrection. Well, his resurrection appearances didn't seem to be at the temple in Jerusalem where, you know, the Pharisees immediately would mm -hmm. converge on him with their cohort, the temple guards. But why his resurrection appearances would have been more or less here and there, maybe not so much in secret all the time, because Apostle Paul records that one was to a group of the largest 500 people at a time. But it would explain um, why the Romans weren't searching for him. But it would also not explain, the swoon theory certainly would not explain their 
assumption that he'd risen from the dead. Yeah. No. I mean, I would think that if I, we do know from two uh, remains of people who have been crucified, where the spike is still through the bone, that sometimes that it is a little hard to get that spike out from the bone. But even if you do, I can't imagine walking all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, where both you've had spikes driven through bones in both ankles, and now you're going to walk. What is it like? It's got to be a few days walk. Yeah, three days journey at least. Yeah, on your on your wounded, badly wounded ankles. Um, yeah, they would just assume that he somehow survived and that he needs serious medical attention and, and rehabilitation. Yeah. But they would not assume that he'd risen from the dead. And in this in this time where he's supposedly recovering, um, he would have had to have done it nearby the tomb. Otherwise, people would have seen him. Yeah. Um, in the walk to Galilee, he would have had to have been recovered enough that people are not going, hey, that guy, he looks really, really bad. Uh, maybe we should look into this a little bit, like, unless, unless they're thinking that Jesus has taken the, the back roads, which would extend the time that he's having to walk. Or, or covering himself up excessively, or something like he could be, he could be um, asleep, riding on the, riding in a cart in the back, or something. So there could, you could give them the benefit of the doubt and say there's ways Jesus could have snuck that whole way or something. But all those stories involve someone with really expert medical expertise um, finding Jesus. Nobody else finds him. Nobody else knows, but this medical expert finds him helps him get better all by themselves and then helps Jesus get all the way there so that he can make his appearance to his disciples and then doesn't tell anybody for the rest of his life. Even then that doesn't really make any sense. And why would, why would they want to help Jesus propagate this lie? Why would Jesus want to propagate the lie too? Why would Jesus want everyone to think he's been resurrected? What's the point? Right. Okay. No, no. Jesus did have a disciple that was pretty smart and, and was a doctor. Mm -hmm. Could Luke have done a lot of this stuff? If you theoretically, you could say you, you do find Luke entering the story later on rather than, rather than at that point. But even if Luke were to be the, to be the one, you start getting into this problem, which is a big problem in most of the resurrection conspiracy theories is the problem of motivation. So if Luke and all his friends get tortured and murdered and humiliated and lose their jobs, why are they doing it? The proper response would be, even if you really respected Jesus and loved him, I'd say, okay, Jesus, let's get you back to, back to good health. Let's run away, right? Let's get you somewhere safe. Let's hide you, like something. Saying, let's go out there and tell everybody that you've resurrected from the dead how does that benefit Luke? If he, if he knows Jesus didn't actually die and then rise, why go out and tell people? Why die for that lie? Why get tortured for that lie? It does, the, the motivation behind that doesn't make any sense. Now, the disciples at the time, they didn't even really understand the whole idea of the, the three, day, three days and resurrection. Like, that's why their disciples were still doubting. Mm-hmm. When, when Jesus came yeah. in. So they were hiding even. So it, it would have to be um, 
well, yeah, there, I can't even think of a motivation. Like, yeah, it seems that we're faced with a with a conspiracy theory either in favor of Jesus rising from the dead. That's a conspiracy theory, or a conspiracy theory uh, with regard to him just passing out and swooning. And the thing about a conspiracy theory is that the more you look at a conspiracy theory, the more it just comes unraveled and begins to come apart. And so when we look at the two possibilities, Jesus actually physically rose from the dead or he just swooned and passed out and, and recovered and convinced people he'd risen from the dead. The, the one that unravels, the one that really starts looking ridiculous when you look into it and it really starts coming apart at the seams in every way is this theory that he just swooned or passed out. Whereas the more we look into the possibility that he actually rose from the dead, it does seem to explain a lot of things much better, like the explosion of Christianity within weeks and how his disciples went to their deaths to still insisting that he had risen from the dead. Mm -hmm. It explains the resurrection appearances. It explains the empty tomb, whereas the swoon theory just really, just really looks like, a, and we've, we've seen conspiracy theories in the last two years here. And one of the things is always sorting out between what's true and what's false, because probably there are conspiracies that happen in this world and not everything is a conspiracy theory, but which are, which are the lame ones and which are true? And that's where the difference is. They just come unraveled and come to pieces when you actually investigate them. And it seems that the swoon theory is a classic conspiracy theory that really is hard to, to start patching up once you start looking at it. So when, when did the swoon theory really first come into into play here because i obviously there was a little bit of a different conspiracy that was being spread at the time but what what uh, in the time that all this is happening but wh who's who why why is this all of a sudden uh coming into play uh when did it start and why are people still talking about this so it started um roughly end of the 1700s beginning of the 1800s so we have about 1700 years or more after the time of jesus when people start coming up with this idea it didn't exist prior to that because no one would think a roman could fail at executing somebody right it's just it's just not a thought in anyone's mind so what you have um, which is an interesting historical development is you have the Protestant Reformation. And then through that, people start being okay with challenging religion. And so uh, fast forward a couple of hundred years, you start getting what's referred to as the German liberal theolo theological movement, where some of these scholars were Christians and they were losing their faith, but they were still a part of the faith and they were okay with opening open open challenging against the religious norms because that was kind of almost socially acceptable now still not quite but so, so they were okay with writing that so you start to get all these new ideas roughly about um two and a half centuries ago thereabouts where people are saying hey maybe they were just visions and nobody actually saw the resurrected jesus um well maybe they were hallucinating Maybe um, Jesus died, didn't actually die on the cross and he just passed out. But maybe there was an imposter on the cross. Like they come up with all these new ideas to try to explain things so that they don't have to actually believe in miracles. And so 
out of that, even during that time, you had uh, someone named David Strauss, which is a uh, famous in this whole debate, and he comes up a lot in the swoon theory argumentation, where he wrote against the swoon theory, basically the moment it came out, saying, look how ridiculous it is for all the reasons that we've talked about. So it was largely just not really respected. And so then nowadays, fast forward, and around the 60s, 70s, um, uh, that 80s, that sort of time period, you start to get a resurgence of secular thinking where the general population starts to turn against religion and Christianity. And you start to get people um, wanting reasons to not have to believe anymore. So a lot of these old ideas that were 200 years dead, basically, start coming back again. Um, not quite 200. Some, you, you do see people throughout time. But they, these ideas start coming back some more. And people start jumping on them. And they're largely ignorant. So they don't know how badly they failed, even back when they were written. But they start uh, um, agreeing with it again. Like if you've, if you've heard of the Jesus myth idea, that same thing that came about back in those times. It was dead. Everybody realized it's not a it's not a coherent theory. There's no way it can be true. No, um, and then uh, a few decades ago, it starts to come back out. People start writing about it again. It starts to get popular again. No historians agree with it, but the general population starts to like it again because it helps them believe what they want to believe, which is that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They have to find some way to to say that. So they find these old writers and grab a hold of it. So you you studied this for a little bit. I, I like to play. Um, I remember um, uh, oh, Sean Mc, McDowell. Sean McDowell um, at a apologetics conference um, said, "Pretend me, pretend I'm an atheist. Convince me." Yeah. And he did a really good job of shooting down all of the amateur apologists in the crowd with um, the atheist viewpoint. Take the take the viewpoint of an atheist in this, or or somebody who denies the the crucifixion resurrection. W what theory stands most most op optimal ex uh, reasoning here? Like, is there anything that that somebody can go to and say, okay, this there is potential to this? I would argue... Is it just denying the whole Bible? Um, is that the easiest way to do this and deny history? Like, um, I'm, I'm looking for an actual... Um, yeah, the, the problem with denying the Bible is that you get all these facts regardless of whether you believe the Bible or not, right? So it's, it's not just a case where Christians are saying, well, the Bible says so, so I have to believe it. You get all these points in extra biblical material. So that doesn't, that doesn't help save you. You have secular historians that are antagonistic to the Christian faith, um, like um, like, uh, like Bart uh, uh, Bart Ehrman, uh, that will not agree with the Christian faith, but they still agree with the basic fundamentals of what the history says about this. If I were to pick a theory as being the best approach for a secular person to fight combat Christianity, it would be that the disciples stole the body, because that's what the original audience, the the original Pharisees, the way that they argued. They knew there is no way we can tell people it was a hallucination because the tomb's empty. There's no way we can tell people that Jesus didn't die because the story doesn't make any sense and Romans are professional killers. There's no way we can tell them there was an imposter on the cross because we're the ones that gave them Jesus, right? So all of these sorts of things have such obvious failings. I think the, the, the disciples stealing Jesus is the best explanation 
that a secular person could give, but it's still so flawed. Like I said, the motivation. Imagine for a moment you are John and you steal the, you, you beat up the guards somehow, maybe you drug them, you push the stone away, you steal Jesus away, he's dead. And then you say, okay, well, let's, let's find a place to bury him. So you bury him in a field somewhere that no one's going to find him. It's like, okay, what do we do now? Let's tell everyone he's raised from the dead. First of all, that's not a Jewish concept. So to start spreading that around makes no sense based on Jewish theology. But then also, they start getting tortured and killed for it. Why are they even bothering to tell everybody he's raised from the dead? And equally, you have people like Peter, who was absolutely terrified, denying his, his, um, his uh, teacher that he even knew him, swearing him off. And all of a sudden, he has a newfound passion and enthusiasm, and he's fearless, right? Like, why is Peter willing to be tortured and killed for this when they know that it's a lie? It's not that they strongly believe it. Like, you could say, um, well, they strongly believed it, and they were willing to die for it because they really believed it. Well, they were, if, if they stole Jesus' body from the tomb, they know he's not resurrected. They know it for a fact, and they're going to be tortured and killed for something that they know to be a lie, that serves no purpose whatsoever, right? That, that doesn't make much sense to me. And interestingly, there was, um, there was a debate, I believe it was between Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew, and they presented these ideas. Um, the, the Christian presenting this argument and the secular person presenting the secular arguments. And there was um, an atheist in the crowd named Charles Hartshorn. And people knew that he was a like, famous atheist. They said, okay, how do you, where, where do you stand on this? You just heard the whole debate. What do you have to say? And he said, I, I, I can't quote it verbatim, but I, I have the quote if you want. He said, basically, I can't agree with the Christian. I don't like, I don't like Christianity. But I can't agree with the atheist because his ideas are all so, so badly argued. None of those are theoretically possible. I just have to admit I'm biased against miracles. And which is, that's a totally legit thing. Yeah. That's a legit thing. Okay. You cannot believe this happened. It's impossible to have the faith to believe this happened. So you have to have the faith that it didn't happen. Yeah. It's faith either way. And, uh, and our, our I, I, I like how you brought up. I like how you brought up Peter because Peter, to me, is an example of somebody who, um, he really didn't like the idea of going to the Gentiles. Yeah. To share, to share this Jesus with the Gentiles, like it took a vision <laughs> to even get him to remove his Jew first philosophy so that Jesus could be shared with the Gentiles. Why would he do that if he never saw Jesus after the, after the crucifixion? And then you also get the story of Paul and then the story of James as well, where Paul gave up his entire livelihood, the path for his career. He gave up all money, all comfort, all respect, all authority for what? Right. It doesn't make any sense unless the story is actually true and Jesus showed himself to Paul. Then you get James. We have in scripture where it says Jesus's family came to him thinking he was nuts to calm him down and bring him back home. That would be James, his brother, his half brother. So James is coming to him and saying, Jesus, you're insane. You need to calm this down. Then Jesus dies as his brother. You'd be like, I'm sad, but I told you so. And then all of a sudden, James 
converts to Christianity, believes in the resurrection, believed that Jesus actually rose from the dead and showed himself. And now James is leading the church in Jerusalem and being willing to be tortured and killed for his beliefs. Believing but there's got to be some money behind that. There's no reason somebody would actually do that if it wasn't for the money, and, right? And not only that, but I mean, I, and I do this when I give when I give speaking engagements to students. I'm like, what would convince you that your own sibling is God? Right? <laughs> and everybody laughs because it's like, yeah, there's no way. I know my sibling. There's no way I could ever do that. But James did, and that's why, like, like you you said a moment ago. I just want to comment how you said it's faith either way. There's a big difference there because you have faith and you have to, the secular position has to ignore all the data. That's not faith. That's blind and irrational faith. The Christian position makes sense of all the data. That's not like, yes, it's faith because you're putting your trust in it, but it is not blind and irrational faith. It's a well-reasoned faith. It seems that there's an important point to really emphasize here. And that is because uh, a lot of people tell me they can say, well, look at the Jim Jones thing. Look how many people drank the Kool-Aid and died. And, you know, people do die for things that are made up and not true. But you made a very important point here. And that is the people at the Jonestown incident where they all drank the Kool-Aid and died. They did not know this is false. Yeah. They just they believed it was true on the basis of what Jim Jones had taught them. But in the case of the disciples, in order to propagate the the idea that he had that he had risen from the dead, even though they'd stole the body and buried it somewhere else, they knew it was false. Yeah. And you might get some people who would stick to their story to the end, but there were too many people involved, knowing this is false, and knowing that there's really nothing to gain from this. Yeah. Like Jim Jones, for example, got lots of he he practiced prima nocta, which was when a couple got married in his commune he spent the first night with the bride and then the husband got her after that so there was some gain there was women to be gained in his false religion there was no there was no none of that for the disciples there was no power there was only persecution and denigration and most of them paid with their lives for this it does not make sense at all that they would have cooked up the story that he'd risen from the dead it was just so many things against mm -hmm. it because they would have known it was false but yet they still believed that he was well they still paid with their lives which suggests that they knew this is actually true yeah. this, and, this, and not an easy death either no some of them died on unfortunate deaths yeah. um uh, we're we're at about an hour uh here um I don't want to take up everybody's time, but it is Easter tomorrow, uh, or it's uh, Easter this weekend, Good Friday tomorrow. Um, the whole idea of the crucifixion is incredibly important in Christianity. Um, it, it's central. It, you need crucifixion. You need the resurrection for Christianity to exist. Yeah. Why? The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is crucial to Christianity because it deals with the problem. Every other religion considers the, everybody knows the problem is evil, right? That's, that's the big thing is we are not good. We know we're not good. How do we fix it? And every other religion says something along the lines of do better, get better, be better, 
do it yourself, do more good works, that sort of thing. And it never fixes it. Christianity has this, has the same problem where it says we're evil. We know we're evil. We know there's something wrong. And it adds to that and says, we're supposed to know God and we don't, right? There's something wrong. What the whole point of Jesus was, was Jesus entering into the guilt of our sin with us. That's the whole point of the incarnation of Jesus becoming human. The whole point of that wasn't just so that Jesus could hang out with us. It's nice that he did, but that wasn't the point. The point was Jesus entered into humanity with us and he became sin, even though he was sinless. So he enters into that relationship with us, becoming human. He becomes guilty with us on our behalf. The way scripture refers to it is they refer to Christ as the head of the church, as being the representative, the authority of the church. So when we say things like, um, do you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What that means is Jesus being your Lord, your authority, your God, your head, your, your representative. So Jesus being human steps in there and says, I represent them. And so the, the penalty that is due on us for our evil, how do we fix the problem of evil? That penalty that is on humanity then goes on our new representative who is human, who takes that on to himself. He takes that penalty and that punishment and that, that um, guilt and sin, he takes it upon himself and he pays the price for that. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. If you have sinned against God, you deserve to die. And not just, not just die, but be punished for your sin. So Jesus takes that upon himself and he, he paid that price for us on the cross, being not um, not just killed, but having that having that uh, punishment and penalty and the wrath of God poured out upon him. And then because he is human, he was able to do that. But because he is God, he is able to take the price for everyone. And he was able to defeat death in that moment. And so the important um, theological aspect of the resurrection is that Jesus rose from the dead defeating death, which gives us hope that we have the same thing for the future. The way scripture talks about it is that Jesus is the first fruits or the, the firstborn of the resurrection from the dead, that that's what we all have to look forward to. In the same way that he's our representative in our, uh, in our guilt, he is also the representative of what's going to happen to us. So in the future, because our price has been paid, we are no longer guilty before God. The evil problem has been fixed and solved. And we will be resurrected just like Jesus to exist with God for eternity, which is what we were originally created for. Kirk, anything to add? <laughs> I, I liked your description, John, because uh, it's always interesting to listen. It's the same. It, it, it's the essence of what we call the gospel. It's the good news for humanity. But I love to hear how each person presents it. And you've, you've done it very well. Uh, basically, Christianity stands or falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, the one thing I would, uh, one of the things that I say is that God is the origin of flawless love and beauty and purity, but he's also the origin of justice. Mm -hmm. And somehow he is the origin of flawless justice and flawless love, both he desired to satisfy. So what he did, what Christ did was he took the demands of flawless justice on himself as our representative, as you, as you put it, 
so that he can then satisfy the demands of flawless, perfect love. Mm -hmm. And this, this is why he came, died and rose again to take all of that so he could satisfy the demands of flawless love for those who will accept that, that gift of forgiveness for what he had, what we have done. Yeah. Because if you have somebody, because some people will think that I think, Oh, okay. So Jesus did it all already. So I'm good. Well, if you reject him as your head, you reject him as your representative. Essentially, what you're doing yeah. is you're saying, I want to represent myself. So imagine going mm -hmm. before the judge and saying, I want to represent myself here. Well, you're guilty. So you're getting the punishment. Right. Where mm -hmm. Jesus has said, I represent them. I'll pay it. So that idea, like you said, you have to actually put your faith and trust in Jesus in order to receive that. Yeah, it's like a pardon like we have in our criminal justice system. Sometimes a pardon will be given, but the person could reject that pardon. They could not accept that. And in which case, well, they're on the hook. Yeah. And you can, th you can uh, think of about, about people in a police investigation where the cops, just say the cops have messed something up. And so the cop that messed everything up, his commanding officer comes out and says, you know what? It's my fault. I'm the one that got him mixed up in this. I'm the one that messed up the operation. I'm going to take the fall. Imagine the cop then turning around saying, he doesn't represent me. Like, okay, well then you're the one going under the bus, right? Like you're yeah. going to be the one taking yeah. the fall then. But yeah, that's why, like, I, I love that aspect of the justice and the love because God, this, the idea of hell is another very important concept in Christian theology. And it is not that God has a torture chamber and he just can't wait to torture people. God himself in scripture says, I do not want to punish you. I do not want damnation to come to you. I would far prefer that you repent. So please just repent and be saved. That idea, God is, the, the whole point of Easter is that God loves us so much that Jesus is willing to become our representative and pay the price for us so that we don't have to, so that instead we can have the eternal life that God has created us for. So I, I think of the guy at the football stadium holding up the John 3.16 sign so he shows up on TV and um, often gets mocked. But when, when I think of that, whoever believes in me yeah. shall not perish but have everlasting life. We're, we're at an important, important part of uh, our theology when, it, when it's Easter. Explain what does belief mean? mean in that case because it, you can believe in jesus but it also says well the demons believe in jesus yeah. but what does belief mean so somebody watching this going okay you've convinced me now what mm -hmm. what do i do the the idea and we and we touched on this earlier with the idea of faith where it, the word believe just means to hold something to be true. And like you said, that's not good enough. Even, even the demons believe, right? That's not, that's not good enough. To put your faith in, in Christ is the concept of putting trust in something. So for example, right now we're all sitting in chairs. Um, if you believe the chair exists and could support you, that is different than the moment you actually put your weight in it. You are proving that belief. You are proving your trust in it. You are proving that you have faith in the chair to support you. Similarly, you might believe all the things about Jesus and say, like, like I've, I've talked to people different times where I've given this whole argument to them and I've said, so do you want to accept Christ? And they go, no. And it's like, do you have any reason at all 
So believe what I've said is false. They go, nope, you've actually laid it out quite well. That doesn't happen often, but it has happened where they're willing to admit that. They go, you know what? You've laid it out pretty well. I don't know how to respond. It's like, why don't you want to accept Christ? I just don't want to change. Well, in that case, you might believe what Jesus did for you, but you are not putting your faith and trust and hope in him. You are not allowing him to be your representative. You are, not, you are holding on to your sin and your, your own way of living rather than putting your trust in God. That's what faith means. And so in this sense, if somebody really does believe it, um, it requires repentance and saying, okay, God, I have messed up. I recognize I've messed up. I'm not, and it's not promising to be perfect from now on. It's saying, I realize I've messed up and I need help. Help me, God. Please forgive me. Help me along this path. The, the part of Christianity, an, another part that's important is, it's not that the moment you convert, you become perfect or you have to be perfect or else or something. A big part of it is that we are constantly being transformed into the image of Christ. That is an ongoing process where we become more and more and more like Jesus as we go on. So becoming a Christian just means recognizing the truth of what Jesus has done for you, putting your faith and hope and trust in him, repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness, and then moving forward and allowing Christ to start changing you, the Holy Spirit to start making you more like Jesus. And that's a lifelong process yeah. at that point. It's like a road that continues to go higher up and further in, but it is a process mm -hmm. that lasts the rest of our lives. So there's a couple more uh, quick things I'd like to touch on here, uh, just because it's such an important part of our, like even, even people that don't step into a church throughout the rest of the year, many do at this time because it's such an important time. Um, we've got, you said the rest of your life that that's, that's uh, it's going to take the rest of your life to, to renew yourself, renew your mind. You don't renew yourself, but uh, renew your mind. Um, but what if you're, what if your life's really, really bad and you don't think that um, anybody would forgive you? Um, on that note, it's really interesting because my mom is an excellent example of that. Um, where my mom, I, I won't go into some of the stuff because it's just horrible, but my mom was involved with uh, biker gangs. She was a drug uh, involved, not just in doing drugs, all sorts of different drugs, but producing and giving uh, drugs out to people. She was, um, she carried a gun with her wherever she went. Uh, she was engaged to a bank robber. She actually dated two different bank robbers. Um, so just in, involved in all sorts of horrible things, the worst of the worst that you can that you can think of and when she actually understood the forgiveness that christ offers she repented because she knew she was guilty so if you think oh i'm so bad no one could ever love me no one could ever forgive me at the very least you're you're one step in the right direction you recognize that you're a sinner and that's good that's a good step a lot of people can't even get to that point so if you recognize you are a sinner Know that the way God describes himself all throughout history, over and over and over again, even in the Old Testament, where we think God seems so angry and violent and stuff, even there, God is constantly waiting for people to repent, waiting for them to come back to him, to apologize, to say, I want to change. And God loves those opportunities. If you see in the throughout scripture, the, the people that God uses the most are the worst ones. 
It's like God likes the challenge. So if you think, oh, there's no way that God could forgive me or use me or something, trust me, God likes that challenge and he might even use you more than somebody else, right? Well, there's a reason that it just happened that there was this other guy on the cross that repented and another guy beside him that didn't. Mm -hmm. That coincidence is amazing. Yeah, you've got two condemned criminals on either side. So neither of them are very reputable at all. They've been condemned to death, but yet one of them chooses to put their faith and trust and belief in Jesus Christ while on the cross. And Jesus accepts him, says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there's, um, I, I actually feel quite sad for a person who thinks that they're so far gone, God couldn't love them, because that's simply not true. In fact, you, you made a point there that you're actually closer to God if you reach the point that you believe, well, I'm pretty bad. I got some serious issues. I'm so bad that I don't know if God could love me. You're closer to God than the fine upstanding citizen in your community who thinks they're so good they don't need God because they don't even see their own shortcomings. If you believe you're bad, you are actually closer to God than the one who can't even admit that they are. And God's arms are just wide open, just wide open for you because that's the whole point of why jesus died and rose again to just completely take away that old that old old things remove them forgive them erase them and give you a whole new a whole new life that can begin the moment you put your faith in christ it's not a not everything's fine as we've admitted but it's it's a beginning of a whole new life that you can now begin to experience with god and I think that's an, that's an interesting point too. the idea of like, you can be so far gone, but God still wants you and you can be not that bad, relatively speaking. But if you don't rely on Christ, you're nowhere. I have a friend mm-hmm. who's literally a murderer, literally murdered someone and went to yeah. jail for it. And, and he did his time and everything. So no need to try to call the police or whatever. He did his time, but literally a murderer. And he has repented yeah. and he's a very godly man. And it's not, oh, I, and it's not fake. It's not like he's pretending. He really cares, no. and he really is really passionate about the gospel and loves yeah. the Lord. And I know people that don't do that much wrong. They're good. They go, they go on missions trips even to help mm-hmm. other people, but they don't accept Jesus Christ. So they're saying, "Hey, God, it's it's the way I describe it is it's like it's like spitting in God's face and saying, mm-hmm. "Okay, God, you created me for a relationship with you. I've sinned against you." And I know Jesus, Jesus has paid the price for me and loves me and wants to restore that relationship. I don't want it. Get out of here. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to live for you. I don't want anything to do with you. Well, that's in, in this sense, that is worse than the murderer. You are in a, a worse state than the murderer because God is saying, I want to save you from yourself. I want you to, to save you from the, the, the way that you're going. And you're saying, nope, I'm good where I am. Right. That's a far more dangerous place to be in. Yeah, we have a tendency to uh, evaluate each other by ourselves. So we say this person's really bad and I'm, I'm pretty good. But the way God sees us is that, well, you guys are all kind of there's this death inside of you because of what you've done. And all of you des- are in desperate condition. There's an infinite gulf almost. But I, I, also, I also knew a former murderer who had spent actually most of his life in the penitentiary. I got to know him in the latter part of his life. 
but he had done a lot more than just murder, but he had served his time in the penitentiary many times for all sorts of things that he did. And you know what? I just love that guy. He was so changed. He was so changed that if someone, if you didn't know him, know his past and somebody told you he was a former murderer and whatever, you would have a very difficult time believing that that was true because he was such a, a warm, he had just totally changed. God had actually, when he put his faith in Christ, God began to change him and it became, it became just a, a totally lovable, compassionate, caring person for the latter years of his life. That is just, it's a miracle what God can do if, if he has a horrible track record and then decides to put his faith in Christ. So as a, as somebody who might be watching, um, watching this, that you were coming to the end, um, you have a choice right now. Uh, it could be one of the last choices you make in your life. You don't know where you're going to be tomorrow. Um, you, you do have the choice. Do you want to put faith in God? Accept the gift that he's done. Accept that this death on the cross and the resurrection happened. And turn your life to him, which is, which is the call here. It's, uh, I am not the God of my life. I'm not in control of my life. I need you, Jesus, God, to be in control of my life. So if you're watching right now and you want to, um, you want to make that decision, um, we want to offer that now. Um, it's a simple prayer. Uh, Kirk, why don't you just uh, share, share that process of somebody um, coming to know Jesus? What does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd be happy to share because when I made that decision, I didn't know a whole lot about theology, and but I just knew the basics, that I'm in deep trouble. I knew there was a problem within me. I felt, I sensed that distance between me and God. And uh, basically, the way it was explained to me was that what I, the thing that separates me from God are the, the wrongdoings, the things that I've done that are wrong, my sin, my moral infractions, so to speak. But what I, it's, it's, I know it sounds really simple, but it's profound. There reached a point one evening, at first when I heard this, I said, no, I was a bit afraid of God. I was nervous about this massive step because I understood that when I put my faith in Christ, I'm going to belong to God for the rest of my life, belong to God for the rest of my life. I'm not just going to go to church and be religious. I'm going to belong to God. That was a bit scary at first, but when I began to understand who God is, and he's the origin of every good thing given and every perfect gift, then one night as I was laying in bed, it occurred to me, if he loved me enough to die for me, if Jesus Christ died for me because he loved me, then I can trust him. I'm not so afraid of him anymore. So I just prayed a very simple prayer. Um, as I said, I didn't know a whole, I wasn't very theological, but I, it was just simple as this. Jesus, come into my heart or my life take away my sin and take me to heaven when i die i want eternal life it was basically be my savior rescue me from the from the state that i'm in and give me eternal life and i just meant it and it has to be 
from the heart. You're actually choosing to believe in him, not just believe that he exists, but believe in everything that he stood for and everything that he did. So it was a simple prayer. Jesus Christ, I believe that you are, that you died for my sins. Take away my sin and please give me eternal life. And uh, from that point on, I and I prayed that with the idea, I'm going to belong to God when I say this. It's not just a religious, you know, insurance policy. I'm going to belong to God. He's going to be my king and my Lord and the one who saves me from the consequences of my own sin that I've committed over the course of my life. Simple as that. It's a very simple prayer, but I meant it. And I remember that night to this day. And that was decades ago that I prayed that prayer. It changed the course of my life. So if you're praying that prayer right now, you're more than welcome to pray that prayer right now while you're watching us, um, or you pray it later, uh, please tell us. Go to kirkdurston.com or johntopping.com. Or if you have questions, you're not quite ready because you have questions, again, comment uh, below. Or if you want your questions to be private, kirkdurston.com, johntopping.com. Um, they're more than willing to uh, help answer those questions. And if you're, if you think we're wrong, if you think, no, you guys know, do not know what you're talking about. Um, I have evidence of something that is, uh, you guys haven't thought of Post it in the comments. We would love to take a look at what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're in a search for truth too. And so if you're, if you think you have, uh, evidence that we're wrong, please uh, post it in the comments and we'll, we'd love to take a look at that. Um, before we end, there's a couple comments here. Uh, Kirk, I don't know if you're seeing them, but uh, um, I'm not sure which, if you want to answer them uh, on the stream or whether you want to answer them in the, uh, in the comments later. Uh, I'll just whiz through some of these. Like uh, I'm a bull. I'm a believer in Hamashiach, Yehoshua, she. Okay, so Hamashiach is just uh, Hebrew for the Messiah. Um, Yehoshua is um, is Hebrew for Jesus. That means, but he says, please call upon the true names of the Holy Trinity. Okay, well, I don't, okay, so I, I would respond by saying, you can call on God in your own language. You don't have to use Hebrew. Um, but is Jesus of Nazareth in English? And every language has his name in their own tongue and their own language. And so you can just pray in your own language. Um, but when you hear that name, Yeshua or, or Yahuwah or Yahweh, you're hearing the Hebrew version of that. And I guess it does ring, it has a special place, I suppose, to hear the original names. But his name is meant for every language. And he says that someday people from every tribe, every ethnic group, every language will will be part of the kingdom of God in, in eternity. So just feel free to talk to God in your own language. Um, then there's Happy Easter's. Yeah, I've been watching live presentation of The Chosen this week. Yes, Serpa. Uh, thank you for that suggestion. I would highly recommend that series, The Chosen. Start with the first in the series and work your way through. It is very well done. And you can uh, download an app and then you can watch it on your TV or whatever. Uh, highly recommended, The Chosen. This is a perfect week to start watching that series. Awesome. 
before we go, um, anything you want to plug, John? What are you working on these days? Uh, yeah, I would. Uh, you've mentioned my website a few times, johntopping.com, J-O-N, right? John is spelled weird. Uh, but if you like podcasts, I put, a po- I put a lot of effort into my podcast. It's called Ultimate Questions. So you can get it anywhere. Podcasts are available, Ultimate Questions with John Topping. If you don't know how to access things through Spotify or whatever or podcast, you can just go to my website and there's a big button for the Ultimate Questions podcast. So yeah, check that out. I think I'm about 40 episodes in now and I'm really having fun going into the nitty gritty details. Um, Even if you've studied apologetics before, I can pretty much guarantee you there'll be stuff there that you haven't heard before or or said in a different way. So I've had a lot of fun researching that. So hopefully that can be a a good resource for people. Awesome. Uh, Kirk, anything uh, you want to plug right now? And yeah, keep keep to uh, keep checking out my uh, YouTube channel. I've got a uh, pro- it won't probably won't go up till next week, but I'm doing response videos or reaction videos. And there's the one I'm working on right now is by uh, is reacting to a video by well world famous atheist Sam Harris, and it's basically uh, I think the title goes something like Sam Harris uh, demolishes Christianity in 11 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm responding to that and you should see that video next week, later next week, maybe certainly by Friday, I would hope. Awesome. Uh, we may end up talking about it uh, uh, next week but, too, because yeah. uh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Do we have anything scheduled to talk about next week? I don't think we do. No, not yet. So we could, unless oh, some comments come up, but we could talk about that video next week, assuming I get it up on time, but we'll hurry up. It's not like you have anything else to do in the next couple of days. Well, we do have a long weekend coming up and family events and stuff, so I'm not sure. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, John. Uh, We'll have you on again. This was fun. Uh, Love the way you present uh, what you've been studying. And, uh, yeah, those of you that have been watching, uh, we would love to hear from you. Make sure you like, uh, subscribe to the channel, and then uh, hit that little bell, and it'll tell you when there's some new videos coming up. Uh, All right. We'll see you all later. Thanks for having me. Bye for now.